Welcome to the Money is Emotional podcast with Christine Lukin, the Financial Dignity Coach. In this podcast, we help you recover a positive and peaceful relationship with your personal finances. We do this by bringing together wise money management with emotional intelligence. Join us for this journey where we navigate our relationship with money as Christine Lucan draws from years of experience and guest experts to help you get to the root of your money issues. Hello and welcome to Money is Emotional with your host, Christine Lucan. Christine, what's going on? Oh, well, my cats have discovered toilet paper. <laughs> so you would think they would have discovered this as kittens, yeah. but they have not. So oh, we now have to stash toilet paper in places that they can't get to it. And then we have to remember to get the toilet paper before we go sit down. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's a, I can see how that would be a dilemma. <laughs> yeah, so they discovered, they discovered the stash down in the basement and mm. it looked like it had snowed. Oh, no. oh geez. <laughs> so you did a podcast on where, where spouses hide money. So another podcast on where, where you guys hide toilet paper would probably be appropriate <laughs> down the line just for those future cat owners. They're like, oh my uh, God, what do I do now? <laughs> yeah, I just figured since we were past the year mark that they were like, okay, they're just not interested in this. Oh, and it yeah. was just within like the last two weeks, they've decided this is I what we want to play with now. Yeah, I don't know how they age. You know, is dog years is what one to seven? Is cat years kind of the same? I mean, after a year, they're only like ten years old, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah I guess. <laughs> well, they are still children for sure. Yeah, they are. They are yeah, <laughs> definitely still small furry children. Mm. Um, this is not what we came here to talk about, but I'm so glad you brought <laughs> no. that up because that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, we you always like to guest. start things in a lighthearted manner. <laughs> of course, yeah, yeah. And you have a guest on the show today who I'm sure has her that's own true. toilet paper stories, which we won't ask about. <laughs> um, but uh, who did you bring on the show? Well, so our special guest, Allison Dagny, is going to share her triumph over financial abuse and control. Mm. And so before I officially introduce her, I just want to give a definition of what financial abuse is. Financial abuse includes withholding money, controlling all of the household spending, or refusing to include you or the other person in financial decisions. And what I find really interesting is financial abuse occurs in almost 99% of domestic violence cases. Mm. So this is something pretty serious and yeah. it's something that we need to talk about. So I am honored to welcome my former client and my special guest and friend, Allison Dagny. Allison is the author of the best-selling memoir, When Tears Leave Scars, a true story of triumph over emotional abuse. And she's also the host of the Emotional Abuse Recovery Podcast. She's a certified rapid reprogramming coach and a certified trauma-informed coach. Welcome, Allison. Hi, thanks for having me, you guys. It's good to talk to you. Yeah. So, Allison, let's start out talking a little bit about your memoir, When okay. Tears Leave Scars, because to me, this read like a novel, not a memoir. Yeah. And, you know, it's your story about the emotional and financial abuse that you encountered in your previous marriage. 
Did you realize at the time that you were being emotionally and financially abused? No, I actually didn't even know what or how you would define that at the time. All I knew was that I was really, really miserable. I was really unhappy. I felt like I was under a lot of control, um, walking eggshells a lot. And, you know, from the outside, it appeared that I had the perfect life. You know, my ex-husband had a really nice job and we had a really nice house and three kids and private school. And, you know, from most people's perspective, it would have looked like the dream life. Um, It didn't, it, it wasn't like that behind closed doors though. So, you know, when people say, emotional abuse, I think it's difficult because some people don't really know what that looks like. And so that's why I wrote my book, because when I did finally realize, I knew that I couldn't have been the only person going through this. So I had to to tell the story. Yeah. So like, can you elaborate on, on some of the different things that went on that when you left or once you had this realization that you were like, oh my gosh, that's what that was. Yeah. So I guess the first thing that I would say is that this happens sort of like a slow drip over time, Mm. right? So it wasn't something that when we first were together, that was all consuming, controlling behavior. It, to me, was sort of like the frog in the boiling pot of water. You know, if you put that frog in the boiling pot of water, it's going to jump right out. But if you put it in cold water and slowly turn up the temperature, the frog doesn't notice. And so that's sort of how it happened to me and how it happens in a lot of emotionally abusive relationships, which which you said the domestic abuse is paired with financial abuse. It happens in 99% of domestic abuse cases. So um, the things that, because... Because it was very covert, because it was hidden, that's why it made it really difficult to detect, I think, because, Mm. you know, it it wasn't like there was physical abuse. There wasn't even like screaming at me or name calling per se. Um, Mm. There were very kind of roundabout ways of criticisms and uh, manipulation and guilt tactics and things like that. So that's why Mm. it was really hard to detect, because you would think that when you're you know, with someone in a relationship, if they start saying awful things to you, that's your clue, right? Or if they start putting their hands on you, that's your clue, right? Well, I didn't have those kinds of clues in my relationship. Things that as far as like the financial abuse that started, that really upset me, I guess, that I didn't know was financial abuse. I didn't even know financial abuse was a thing, was um, not really allowing me to be part of the conversation about our finances and about money. Um, I, you know, things like you won't understand or it's too complex. He didn't like limit my access to money. Like I had the access to the bank accounts. I had credit cards and things like that, but it was checking of the receipts. It was, do you really need to buy that? And you're going to make me have to retire um, much sooner if you keep spending our money. And I wasn't like a, a big spender. Like I would go to Goodwill and buy my purse so I could have afforded a Louis Vuitton. So, you know, like it was just these sort of sneaky tactics that conditioned me to behave in ways that he wanted, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. No, it makes total sense. And you, you were pretty young when the two of you got together. 
correct? Yeah. I, I was 19 when we first started dating. And then we were in this sort of whirlwind romance at the beginning, which I call now looking back, love bombing, um, mm. because he was giving me gifts and he was buying me things and taking me out and doing all these wonderful, nice things for me. So it was really easy to kind of get wrapped up into that, you know, especially when you grow up thinking that you're going to live this like fairy tale and right up into the sunset with Prince Charming. And mm. so it was very appealing to me. And, um, we ended up getting married really young at like 21. And then I had my first child at 26. That's when I think the financial abuse really kicked in, um, was because I worked prior to that and I had my own money and I had my own job and I had independence as far as finances went, you know, there was still like, I still had to talk to him about things and, you know, but we both were making money. But as soon as I became mom and a stay home mom at that, it was like, he made all the money and I didn't make anything. Yeah. So did you feel like you had less say over the money because of that? Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. Like it, it felt, I mean, and even, you know, it's weird because even he would say things to me like, you know, you're, you're the stay home mom and like you, you, you actually do things in the home. Right. So that's, that's a value. Like it was so, I don't even know how to say it. Like, and I don't, think we can, I don't want to cuss on your thing, but it was like a mind, you know what? Like, yeah, (laughs) like that is what it was like, because I would be told certain things, but then the behaviors were different. Right. So, Mm. oh yes. Like you have, you know, access to the money and all this stuff, but like, I would be made to feel like a horrible person for going over a hundred dollars a week for a family of five at the grocery store or, you know, like not using coupons or not buying the the um, store brand items versus the name brand items. And there was just so much of like, you don't know anything about this. I'm the one you you don't have the knowledge with money and things like that. Let me handle it. And so it became more of a, what, what, how do I want to say it? Like a disparity of like, we were not equal at all when it came to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and for those people who haven't read your book, I mean, he, he works in the financial sector, which actually, you know, because of that, Mm -hmm. there's like this, you know, you would defer to his, his knowledge and expertise because that's his whole profession. And honestly, it's not uncommon for the divorcing women who coach with me to be divorcing someone who works in financial services because, Mm -hmm they just felt like, well, that's your expertise. You know, that's what you should do. Right. And, you know, it's okay for somebody like that to take the lead, but he was basically pushing you out of the conversation entirely. Right. And, and there was such an imbalance of power when it came to that and not just the, the money piece, but in every piece, right. Because Mm. he became the expert on my life in general. So it didn't matter what area it was. He was the one I defaulted to, to ask him, is this the right thing? And should I be doing this? And how should I act with this? And what should I do here? And how, I mean, everything, he became the authority truly in every area. Yeah. So I'd love for you to give us some specific examples of how your ex-husband controlled you with money and limited your access to it. And I would actually like for you to tell the coffee story. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> and like I said before, I had a credit card. I had my name on the bank accounts, right? So it wasn't like he said, you cannot spend money. Now I was right. threatened that if I didn't adhere to his 
uh, parameters and what he felt like I should be spending that I would get an allowance and mm. I wouldn't have credit cards anymore. So it was, you know, it's these sort of tactics that an abuser will use to keep you in line and to keep you behaving in a way that they want you to. So the coffee story is an interesting story because I wasn't allowed again, right? He's the authority. I wasn't allowed to drink coffee and I absolutely loved coffee. I used to drink it before, like when I was at my job, before I became a stay-at-home mom and I really enjoy coffee. I know you do too. I mean, coffee is like life for us. I know. This this story like made me so mad. Like so mad. I'm like, let me find your ex and throat punch him. And you know, know, I'm not a violent person. (laughs) No, I know. So if I was out somewhere, let's say I went through McDonald's drive-thru and at this time they were like a dollar for a coffee and I would, you know, put it on my card and immediately he, I guess he would get notifications from the bank and then he would call me and say, are you getting coffee? Like, what are you doing? Yes, I'm getting coffee. Like you can get a dollar coffee. And then just the constant barrage of like insults of coffee's gross and it makes your breast smell and it's not good for you. And like all these things. And why do you want to do it? And, um, I just continued to sneak it basically because I liked it. So (laughs) I I just snuck it behind his back. I actually had bought a coffee maker. Like everybody else at this time had Keurigs and, you know, the instant coffee machines. And I had just gone to Kroger and bought a, like a Mr. Coffee coffee machine and kept it tucked away in the cabinets and he didn't really get into the cabinets. So I don't even know if he knew we had it. Well, one day I, and I did this often, but one day I was making coffee after he left for work and I had to go down to, I think to my sister-in-law's house and help her with something. And I left out the coffee maker and I totally forgot about it. And he actually had come home early from work that day and I wasn't there at the house. And I didn't even know, but when I came home, I saw him in the house and the coffee maker was not there. So I looked for, I didn't say anything to him because I was scared. I I didn't want to like say, Hey, where's my coffee maker. Right. Because I'm not even really supposed to be drinking coffee and let alone having a coffee machine in my house. I didn't say a word to him. He didn't say anything to me about it. And I just kept looking and looking. And for like three days, I looked for that thing. I thought, well, maybe he cleaned it out and put it away or Maybe he took it to his mom's house or something. And I remember, I think it was the third day I was cleaning out something in the garage and I found it in the craftsman tool chest, like hidden down underneath. And I went into the house and I was like, I found my coffee maker. Like, why did you hide it? And I was really upset. Like I was really, really upset because at that point I knew like he purposefully was doing that. And it was really, really upsetting to me because, you know, it's just all about control, all about him controlling what I'm doing. And he didn't want me spending money on things he doesn't find valuable. And to him, that was not valuable, you know, and there's more to that story, but, you know, essentially it was just a, a a major red flag as far as Mm -hmm. someone trying to control you in really always, but including financially. Yeah. Yeah. So when you decided to leave your marriage, mm-hmm. you know, you getting the money mm-hmm. to retain an attorney, you know, this wasn't just like something you could pull out of the account without 
No, because otherwise he was going to know about it, right? No. So even though you lived in a high net household, mm-hmm. you know, getting up, getting your hands on the money to actually initiate the divorce was oh. a challenge. So tell us yeah. that story of how you finally broke free financially. Okay, so first I had to plan, right? I didn't just one day decide I was going to divorce him. I actually took several months and I was squirreling away money because I knew, like you said, if if he saw $2,000 <laughs> out of our checking account, he'd be like, what the heck is this? I didn't want right. him to know because from my perspective, I wasn't sure what he was capable of. So mm-hmm. um, I didn't know if he would try to physically harm me. I didn't know if he would emotionally try to reel me back in. And, and I was already dead set on leaving. I was just really, it was very unknown and very scary. So I did a lot of planning. And the first thing I did was when I got a hold of my attorney, I asked them about the retainer and and they said, you know, I could even write a check to them um, up front and they wouldn't cash it until he until until he was served the papers. So um, but I was what I was doing in the meantime was saving money in any way that I could. Now, how do you save money when you don't have a job? right? Right. (laughs) <laughs> so, so a lot of people want to know, like, where did you get it? Like, were you stealing? No, I wasn't. But what I was doing was I would go to the store on my regular grocery trips and I would purchase gift cards on the credit card. So okay, I would then keep those and then I would somehow the receipts would disappear. I don't know where the receipts are for my groceries and they would disappear. I didn't do it regular regularly enough because he, he wanted to see the receipts for right. the purchases. So I couldn't do it like every single time, but I did it often enough to where mm-hmm. he wouldn't notice, or I guess intermittently enough to where he wouldn't notice. Right. And then um, I also would do things like when, when his sister-in-law or his mom would, I'd be going to the grocery store and I'd say, Hey, do you need something from the store? And they would say, sure. Can you pick me up this or that? Right. Cause I'd live near them and I would offer to, we did this often. So yeah. I would do that. And then when I would go back to give them whatever they needed, I would get cash from them. And then I would just Mm. keep that cash. So, and he didn't know about that. I was doing things that were um, sneaky and under the radar because I had to, I didn't have a source of money for myself. So Mm -hmm. if I did get some money from like a birthday or something like that, or gift from someone, I just put it in my little envelope and hit it. So he couldn't get to it Mm -hmm. um, or didn't know it existed. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of crazy. So yeah, and it doesn't feel good to do that, right? It doesn't. But I, I had no. to plan, and I didn't know if I was gonna have money. I didn't know if I was gonna have access to it. I, I never charted these kinds of waters before, and planning for a divorce is something like nobody. If you've never done it before, you don't know what it's like. Right. Yeah. So when you finally had a little bit of a nest egg saved mm-hmm. and you were ready mm-hmm. to tell the attorney, all right, yeah. serve the papers. Yeah. Now I don't know. I don't think this may be available in, in all States or all right. areas of the, of the country or the world, yeah. but you did something called financial status quo. I did. So I did. tell, tell us what that is, because I thought this was actually pretty genius. I'm assuming this is right. what your attorney yes. suggested. 
Yes. And I always recommend this if you can ask your attorney about it, because then maybe in some states you can. Um, but basically what this means is you keep all of the finances the way they've always been until the divorce is finalized. If I had access to the credit cards and I was spending to buy groceries, I could still do that. If I had access to the bank account and I needed money to pay for something that was for the kids or whatever, I could do that. So I wasn't now all of a sudden we're filing for divorce. We're in a separation situation and I have no access to money, no credit cards. I am completely destitute, right? I even had to, I moved in um, with a friend of mine and I was paying her rent to live there. I, in order to do that, I had to have money. So being on status quo was something that was truly truly a lifesaver because I hear all the time in the work that I'm in women who say they, you know, get separated from their, their ex and like, they literally cut them off and they have no money. They have no job. And that is a really, really awful place to be, especially when child support hasn't been ordered or maintenance hasn't been figured out yet or any of that. And then Mm -hmm. like, how are you supposed to live? So status quo was absolutely um, pivotal for me to be able to not be in a really destitute position. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, you know, you and I started working together. I want to think, say it was probably at least a year or so after you left him, but mm-hmm. tell us about the journey of how you transformed your relationship with money since your divorce, because obviously I have seen such progress and I am like so proud of how you're doing with money right now. And your confidence is just through the roof. But, you know, even though you got, you know, a a good amount of money and assets out of the divorce because you were coming out of a high net worth mm-hmm. household, you still didn't feel like you were going to be okay. No, I, I literally thought I was going to be living under a bridge. Like... <laughs> I did. I truly thought I was going to be living under a bridge. I was scared to death. I mean, I, I had, I had money, right? I'm not saying I didn't have money. I had money, but I was Mm -hmm. scared because I thought money was like, it was because of the conditioning and the programming that happened during our marriage that like, you know, like almost like this sense of scarcity or Mm -hmm. like, Uh, we don't have enough and money is hard to come by and all these things that were like programmed into me throughout the time that I was married and which was a 20 year time span. So I get in, I get, you know, this independence from him. And now I'm like, what am I doing? I I don't know how to, to do this. I have not ever even looked at these accounts before. Right. I have no idea what was in front of me and it was very overwhelming and very scary. I didn't want to spend money on anything. Like I literally was scared to spend money. Like it was a scary thing to even spend money because it would trigger me. Like I I can still recall this one time that I went to the grocery store after we left or after I left him and I had spent like $250 on that trip. And this was like not normal for me. I normally only could spend a hundred per trip, Mm -hmm. right? So I spent over double that. And I almost had a panic attack in the parking lot, putting my groceries in the back of the car because, and I couldn't figure out why. And I was like, what is wrong with me? Why am I feeling like this? And I realized at that moment, it was because when I started putting groceries in the car, when I was married is when I started thinking about, okay, I got to get the receipt. I got to make sure, you know, I can explain everything and justify my purchases and why I bought this and instead of that. And that's what happened that day. 
Mm. And so that trauma was stuck inside of me. And so I knew I needed help. Like, and that's why I reached out to you because I had these unreasonable fears. They didn't, they didn't make sense. And so I knew like, okay, something has to change here because this is, this is not working and I can't live the rest of my life feeling like this. Right. Yeah. Well, and that makes sense because, you know, to me, it makes sense because that's, that was your experience Mm -hmm. previously, even though, you know, he was basically saying we have no money, but like, we both know he had plenty of money, right? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, It was just this, the fear that was generated around it and the, the, the criticism and just the conditioning of saying that, this is too hard for you. This is too complicated for you. And, you know, it was like, as we started going through our coaching, I mean, yes, of course there were things that you didn't know that you had to learn, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't as hard. (laughs) It wasn't as hard as he had made it out to be, you know, and now it's just like, you know, you've just taken things and, and run with them and, and are just doing so well in that that aspect. And it's, um, you know, I think that people who have had that conditioning, it's like, there's nothing wrong with you. However, there are some emotional things that need to be uprooted, that need to be examined, that need to be healed so that you can move forward and have, have a good relationship with your money. Yeah. And I, I love that that's how you coach because, you know, having a relationship with money was something that never existed when I was in the relationship with him. I just, right. it, it didn't feel good. It was scary. There was a lot of like worry associated with it. And, you know, like imagine being in a relationship with somebody who, who did that to you, but having that feeling about money. Right. And that is mm-hmm. not feeling at all, especially when you're now on the other side of it and you still feel that way about money. So it was really, really helpful that you were able to help me, you know, not only educate me and teach me things that were really important, but also changing my mindset around how money and I got along. I mean, that was really pivotal. Yeah. Well, and I do think that that's common with people who have been through some sort of trauma that that money has been entangled with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about that in my book, Financial Dignity After Divorce. And I actually tell some pieces of your story in the book that, you know, it's almost like it was like money and your husband were on the same team. And yes. it was them versus you. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and so then all of a sudden, once you're divorced, it's like you and money are sitting on opposite ends of the couch and you're like, Oh no, like I still have to deal with you. And exactly. <laughs> you know, and poor money's like, look, this this was not my plan. Like right. I I'm the innocent, I'm the innocent person here. Like I didn't right. want it to be like that. Yeah. And so, you know, it was this combination of going through the finances and and gaining the confidence and the comfort level and addressing those traumas. And I always tell my divorce and clients especially when you've had money trauma that, you know, yes, getting help from a financial professional is absolutely a hundred percent recommended, but getting someone to support you on the emotional side, whether it is 
a counselor, a therapist, or, you know, someone like yourself who is helping them to release trauma is so valuable. So can you tell us just like a little bit about how you work with your clients to help them address those traumas, especially that sense of not being worthy, because I think that is huge. Yeah. Excuse me. Yes, you. Thank you so much for listening to the Money is Emotional podcast. We hope you're enjoying it so far. If you have any questions or would like to talk more about this topic, you can find us at www.christinelukin.com. And all of our social media platforms are listed in the show notes. Absolutely. I'd love to. And I do want to add first as a sort of just an addition to what you said at the beginning here about financial abuse, because financial abuse doesn't always present itself in exactly the same ways. So financial abuse can also be where you are the one that has maybe control of the money and you're the one that makes the money and you're the one that has the income and you could be in a relationship with someone who it guilts you about not giving them money or not paying their bills or tries to make you feel like um, there's something wrong with you or you're not caring or giving enough um, and to manipulate you as, as well. So I, I want to make sure too that people understand it's not just about, you know, when the the husband or one party has the money and is controlling the other person, but also it can happen the other way. It can go in reverse. And I think you have experienced that yeah. personally. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting because for many years, I never saw it as financial abuse. I more saw it as like emotional manipulation, but, but it really was because, mm-hmm. you know, it was like, I was trying to protect money from my ex because yeah. my ex was wild and reckless with the money, but I always handed it over to him, you know? Right. And yeah. so it was just, yeah, it's just interesting how it can be it can be either of those two dynamics. Right. And and really what it boils down to is control. It's all about control. So when one person is trying to maintain a position of power over someone else by controlling mm-hmm. them using money, right? Which we both know is just the tool, right? Money, there's nothing right. inherently evil about money. It's just that they're using that as a tool to hurt you or get what they want or maintain control. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to make sure that I was clear about that um, because I deal with a lot of people and coach women who have this really low self-worth um, when it mm-hmm. comes to like, can they even spend money on themselves? Um, I, sp- I remember I had a client, um, she inherited a lot of money from her parents. She was divorcing her husband who was a lawyer who, so she had significant net worth and Mm -hmm. she had trouble purchasing things for herself and buying things. She'd buy things for her kids, but it was like, well, I can't do that for me. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, shifting that mindset about, you know, and whether you have money or you don't have a lot of money, right. You're still worthy of things that you need and want, and you should be able to purchase things that are within your budget or within your parameters or however that you quantify that to, you know, show yourself that you are worthy of that because there are so many people who really just think that they're a bad person or selfish because that's part of the programming, obviously what happens in in financial abuse, that they can't do that for themselves. Mm, Yeah. That makes so much sense. 
and it's really sad, but the good news is you can change that stuff, right? You can change your mindset. You can change how you feel about yourself because it's all about what happens in your subconscious mind. So as you know, I work with mindset. I work with the subconscious and help women with this kind of thing. So it's not only financial abuse that I help them with, but financial abuse, like you said, it shows up. So it's something that I see a lot. Yeah, absolutely. This wasn't part of my original questions, but I, I love this little story. And typically I don't condone revenge spending, but in your case, because your husband controlled so much and hardly ever let you spend on your, any money on yourself. Yeah. When you were under the status quo. Yeah. You had a revenge purchase. I did. Would you tell us about that? Cause I honestly kind of love it. <laughs> yeah. So this was, I, okay. So I need to give a little bit of backstory. So he was doing things with our joint money um, on purpose. And I could tell because I could see all the accounts and spending things that he would normally not spend money on, but like mm-hmm. giving it to his mom or giving it to his sister-in-law or whomever, like writing checks to them for services, like cleaning or babysitting. And they never cleaned for us. They never babysat for us before. So, and th- th- it was becoming thousands of dollars worth of things mm-hmm. and, and, and re- improvements on the house and repairs and things like just driving me absolutely crazy as I watch all this money sort of go into his pocket. And so there's a lot more to the story too. And like things that he was doing with other women and stuff like that. So you'll have to check that out and read the book. But part of what I did was um, I went on a shopping spree that day and I was like, well, just screw him. I'm just going to go spend money. Like I'm just going to go spend it on whatever I want. So I went to some makeup stores. I went around town. I just was charging, charging, charging my credit card because I was really angry. And like you said, that's revenge and that's emotional spending. So we want to try to be careful (laughs) not to do that. I'm not recommending this to anyone, but people, when you're in a heightened state of emotion, a lot of times we do things that we normally wouldn't do. Um, I remember my friend and I had talked about me getting a nice Louis Vuitton purse because I always bought my purses at Goodwill. I'd always just look for like a nice, decent purse and buy it at Goodwill. And, and there's nothing wrong with Goodwill. I still go there. So just as a caveat for that, <laughs> I'm all for a bargain and all for um, like thrift shopping and stuff like that. I love it. But we had talked about it. And I remember getting online and look, she said, just go buy the, just go buy the Louis Vuitton. I was like, I don't think I can do that. And she's like, yeah, you can. And so I got on there and I looked and I was like, oh, these are way more expensive than I thought. I had no idea how much those <laughs> were, like no clue. And I, and I started to feel a lot of anxiety, but I got some nudges and uh, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. So I just put my credit card number in and I just clicked a button and I was now the new owner of a brand new Louis Vuitton purse. So, um, and I messaged my attorney right away and I said, Hey, I did this. I just want you to know, um, you're, you're probably going to get an email from his attorney as soon as he sees the charge go through. And he did. And my attorney was already prepped for a response and, um, (laughs) nothing happened. Nothing happened from that. And I still have that person. I love it. I know. Yeah. I think think that's a fun story. So, you know, like I said, normally I don't condone the revenge spending, but (laughs) (laughs) it's certainly made for like a a fun twist in your book too. So it it does. (laughs) Yes, it does. And you can read the whole story and and more um, in that, in that book too. Yeah. 
So are there any other warning signs that we haven't already talked about that someone should be looking for Mm -hmm. relative to financial control or abuse that it might be present in their relationship? Um, I think for sure um, when there's this, when there's an imbalance of power, I think it's number one. Um, Mm -hmm. When it's not like, let's have a conversation and sit down at the kitchen table and talk about this. When it's just like, Mm -hmm. these are my roles, this is my money, and this is what I'm doing with it. And you don't have any say of it. That is a problem, especially if you're married to the person, right? If you're not married, it's probably different because you are, that's your money and they've got their own money and stuff like that. Threats to take your money away. That's a big one. Um, mm-hmm. scrutinizing your purchases, looking at things with a very, very, um, hawk eye, you know, just trying to make sure that they approve of what you are purchasing, not trusting you, I guess, with those kinds of things allow, uh, you know, like maybe telling you, you're going to have to get an allowance or something like that. Like it almost is like treating you like you're a child instead of an equal when it comes right. to finances. And I would say other things that are really important to look at are guilt, like guilting you saying, well, you're a bad person or you're a bad, you are bad with money, criticizing you, aggress- aggressive behavior definitely can be part of that. Like getting upset when you buy something that seems reasonable to you, like a coffee or, you know, and a coffee, it was a dollar, right? So it may be reasonable to you for your finances is buying a thousand dollar purse. But if you're being controlled or manipulated or guilted, even silent treatments, right? You go ahead and you do something that you want, you pay for something and you get the silent treatment. It could be like going out with friends and, and spending money on a dinner, you know, mm. anything that is like sort of emphasized that you did something wrong when it came to the money. I'm not saying you can't do things wrong. Like people do things wrong all the time. Right. And right. if you are the kind of person who tends to be really frivolous with money or maybe irresponsible with it, right. That's a different story. I'm talking about when people are purposefully trying to keep you under their control using the tool of money and finances. You and I could probably talk for about two or three hours on this stuff. Oh my gosh, unfortunately, we are running out of time. So do you yeah. have any parting words of wisdom for someone who is recovering from emotional and financial abuse? Yeah, I think the one thing that I would say is, um, because I coach women who are, who are struggling with this, and to change your behaviors around money, like after you've been out like I was, or to change how you feel about it or your emotions. Like if you're getting anxiety about purchasing things, or if you're afraid that you're not saving enough or, or whatever it might be, right. It it can go in all different kinds of directions. We have to explore our thinking. Number one, right. Mm -hmm. Awareness is so important, right. You can't like, if you don't know that you're about to have a panic attack in the parking lot and you're feeling anxious about it and you just kind of dismiss it and you just move on, right? You're not being aware of what's happening inside of you. So be kind of on the lookout for those emotional triggers or things that maybe have been habits or patterns that you never really considered or looked at. Maybe you want to consider doing it a different way or changing how you save your money or changing how you spend your money, right? Being aware of just in general, your habits, your behaviors, your emotions is so number one. And then I think what's really important is doing something like I did, getting support from someone like you who knows, who has the experience, who has the um, the background and the history and the knowledge and that can support you. I think that's number one or number two. And then the, the last thing is to 
really just be kind to yourself and compassionate because this is a process and healing is not something that happens overnight. And a lot of people don't realize that when they've been financial abuse, they have to heal from that or that like attempt to recover. So Mm -hmm. you got to be really kind to yourself and compassionate and don't think that it's going to be something that's going to happen overnight. It can be quick, but it's not like, oh, today I'm here and tomorrow I'm going to be somewhere new. Right. Exactly. Well, Allison, I love that you're now helping others who are coming out of situations like your own to minimize their painful emotions and start feeling peaceful again. So thank you so much for being here. This was wonderful. No problem. And I also, just as another aside, I have a podcast episode on financial abuse on my podcast. So if anybody wanted to go check that one out, they can go check it out. Awesome. Yeah. All right. (laughs) I've got four things. (laughs) (laughs) Christine, seriously, there's so much. Allison, first of all, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So Christine, number one, wherever the throat punching line is, I'm, I'm behind you. Okay, so you start the line and I'm bringing it. Okay. Number two, when you were telling the story of the coffee machine, okay, the coffee maker, the, the only thing I could picture is like all those, you know, the movies and things that you've seen where a husband comes home from work early and oh, the wife is there and he's coming through the door. Where is he? Where's who? Where is he? And the only answer is, who are you looking for? Mr. Coffee, you know? <laughs> That's what's flashing through my mind is this little coffee maker with the tie on and my like, good God almighty. What a jackass. Um, so, then, so funny. Yeah, number three, Allison, if you really, again, we don't condone or Christine at least doesn't condone uh, revenge spending. I've always had a dream and, and I would like to share this dream with you. If you have not seen the top brewer coffee faucet, it is a no, fully automatic coffee faucet built into like your kitchen. Um, that is app controlled, grinds the beans, does everything for you. You can do it while you're right before you get in the shower, you do it on your phone, get out of the shower. It's downstairs ready for you. It's, it's only around $16,000, but. Oh my God. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Let you, me you, take will, a loan out to get my coffee. <laughs> I'm telling you, once I put this link, I'm going to share the link with you privately, you and Christine, so you can both see this thing. It is magical. And, and I don't own one but maybe one day. Okay. So it's going that, on the vision boards, going on the vision board. <laughs> so the, the last thing, my last point is before we hit the record button, we were just chatting and uh, you were telling me a little bit about a little bit of your story. And I said, I'm so sorry you went through that. Um, I take that back. Okay. I'm not sorry you went through that because I'm looking at your book. I'm looking at the reviews online of your book and all the people you've helped just with the book. And then to know that you have a podcast, then to know that you are doing coaching and changing people's lives based on what you went through. I have to retract that. Sorry, because that what you went through set up a legacy that you are changing people's lives all over the country. And so I am so glad to know you. And as hard as that was to go through, I hope you see the ripples in the pond at this point of, of all the things that you're doing. Cause it's amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I do. And I really appreciate you saying that because it took a long time for me to be able to say that, but I am able to say that now that I wouldn't change it for the world. And I would go back and repeat it just to be where I am today. Yeah. You're awesome. You're amazing. And I, I mean, I had no doubt if Christine has you on the podcast, you've got to be. So Christine, <laughs> I know we're going to have links. We're going to have information so people yes. can get a whole Alice and see her stuff. Yes. Also, let's, let's give them some contact information for you. Uh, because this story resonates. Allison started her journey or uh, part of her journey was working with you and, and learning yeah. the things that you teach. And now 
I mean, you've, it's, it's kind of like the Padawan grasshopper thing, whatever that is, where you have <laughs> helped somebody and now they've caught this fever of helping others. And yeah. I love it. So how do people reach out to you? Yeah. So the best way for them to reach out to me is on my website, which is christinelukin.com. If they are interested in financial coaching, um, it's christinelukin.com forward slash apply. And then, of course, all kinds of wonderful uh, resources on the website, both both free and um, and paid resources for people to help get on that journey towards financial dignity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, thank you both so much for uh, an amazing podcast today. And our last thank you, of course, goes to you listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Money is Emotional podcast with Christine Lucan. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Christine comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it and leave a review as this actually helps others find the show. And I'm going to reiterate that one for this show specifically. Please share this podcast, rate it, leave a review so other people know what they're getting into and know the good information that they're going to find. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at Money is Emotional, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Money is Emotional podcast. To get in touch, visit our website at www.christinelucan.com or drop us a line at hello at christinelucan.com. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Christine Lucas. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing or tax advice. Always seek the advice of your advisor, tax professional, or other qualified financial professional with any questions you may have regarding your personal finances.